0: Let's take our Bibles. Let's study the Word, because that's always a good thing, right? All right, let's take our Bibles. And we're going to look at two passages this morning, and we're going to kind of look at them simultaneously. So I'm going to ask you to put some kind of a bookmark in the one that we're not studying when we're studying the other one. But let's start in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. In a few minutes, we're going to look at Luke 23. Last week, uh, we began a series of studying some of the people that had close, personal interaction with Jesus uh, during the last week before the cross. And we are using what they saw and what they heard and what they experienced and how they reacted to ask ourselves, what would we have done in the same situation? How would we react if we had been there during that time? And I know in our minds we probably have a lot of mental pictures that have been formed by media or, or just by what we think of what it was like, um, it's, it's hard to imagine being there, that, that very visceral experience of walking with Jesus in that last week. So we're really diving into some characters to try to understand that better. Now, as we said last week, time gives us perspective. Uh, but in the crucible of having our convictions tested, as these people did, as they interacted with Jesus and were right there in the the heat of the moment of what was going on, when we get in those moments where our convictions are tested, what we truly believe and how firmly we're going to defend it comes right to the forefront. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Judas and we studied his life and the ease with which he betrayed Jesus. And we saw that that was because that everything in Judas's life was a show He had acted like he was a close disciple of Jesus, but his heart was never with Jesus. And we saw that that was really the definition of a hypocrite, somebody that says one thing and acts like they're really sincere and really wasn't. This morning, we're going to see somebody whose convictions were much more complex. And as I've studied this week, it's really come to my heart that there's no question that this man saw Jesus For who he was, and even defended him uh, to other people. And yet, when it came time to really stand for what he believed, he backed down. And that has been very tragic to study, and yet it really causes us to examine ourselves. I I have always thought of Pontius Pilate as someone who's kind of weak-willed, someone who's kind of soft, someone who, who didn't really want to do the right thing and And was easily persuaded. And yet, as I've studied him this week and as we study him this morning, I am convinced that Pilate was strong in his beliefs. But he gets into a situation where he feels, I think, in his mind trapped. Where he feels like he can't make the right decision, even though he can. And we'll show that this morning. And instead of doing what was right, and instead of standing by what he really believed, He backed down. Now, throughout the study this morning, I want us to notice how many times Pilate knew what was right. And how many times Pilate knew what he should have done. And for a long time, as we go through the two accounts that we're going to look at, it seems like that will be what drives him to make the right decisions. But steadily and aggressively, the wall of public opinion starts to build against him. And even though the Lord gives him the resources to fight it and gives him the strength of conviction, Pilate gives in. Now that being said, I hope we see him in a new light this morning. I hope we see him with a little bit more empathy because as we see him with empathy, it's going to lead to frustration. Not not just that he was complicit in Jesus' death, but also that we see ourselves... In a lot of what he does, Pilate never probably expected to meet Jesus. He was the governor of the region. He he probably didn't know it was going to come down to this. But when he does meet Jesus, he doesn't back down. He's very intrigued, and he spends time kind of formulating what's going to happen and what he's going to say. And and he and he meets Jesus face to face. And and I thought this week what an opportunity that was. What. What's so interesting about the people that we're studying in the next week is that they got this opportunity to have this personal time with Jesus, to have this interaction that was close. A lot of people were just part of the crowd. They just watched from a distance. But these people actually spent time in the presence of Jesus, and they had time to listen and time to ask and time to hear and time to understand who he really was. What an amazing opportunity that was. But how did it change them? What did it do to their hearts and minds? What did it create in them? What did they want to know? How did they respond when they found out the information? Did they trust the Lord more or did they become more hostile? And why? What motivated each of these people to respond the way that they did? And when we look at Pilate, that question becomes even deeper. Let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 27. We've got a bit to read here, so follow along. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. As always, turn to verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. If you've got a red-letter Bible, you notice that's the only phrase he says in the whole passage. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. Verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood will be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, there's a lot here, and we're not going to get to all of it. But start with the question that Pilate asked Jesus in verse 11. The charge against Jesus that has been made up by the scribes and the elders and the chief priests is that he is guilty of blasphemy. Now, that was leveled by the high priest of Israel himself. And it's a significant indictment. And it's one that will be fairly easy to figure out. Did you blaspheme or did you not? But notice in verse 11 that that's not what Pilate asks about. He asks if Jesus is king of the Jews. Now, it would seem like the answer to that would be obvious, because there already was a king of the Jews, and his name was Herod. And Pilate and Herod had been longtime enemies. They would soon become friends because of Jesus. But, but as Pilate asked this question, he doesn't get a conversation with Jesus. He doesn't hear a full explanation of what Jesus had said and why and who he was in the background and why he had come. And he doesn't get a, a, a full discourse. He gets one sentence that essentially is a rhetorical answer to his question, where Jesus says, it is what you said. What you just said is true. And then the accusations keep coming from the chief priests and the elders, and Jesus refuses to answer them. And Pilate, I think empathetically, tries to get Jesus to understand. Do you know what's going on here? Do you you understand the gravity of the charges that are against you? You're being accused of something that, that they want to put you to death for. And Jesus won't answer them. It says in verse 14 that Pilate was quite amazed by that. The word in the Greek is very interesting. It means to be astonished and to admire. So Pilate's just not like dumbfounded like, what is your problem? Why will you not answer this? Do you know that they're about to crucify you? As he looks at Jesus' refusal to respond, he's both astonished and, and, and admiring that Jesus won't answer to this. Now what's he thinking at this point? What's going through his mind? He finds himself in the middle of a situation that he didn't expect and now he knows that this is starting to boil very quickly. And I have to believe that from his perspective, he had come to one of three conclusions. Either Jesus was confident or Jesus was completely naive or Jesus by his silence was admitting guilt. There are really only three possibilities there for what Jesus is doing. And as far as Pilate was concerned, if you look at the text, there was no fault in Jesus. In fact, he's so impressed by his innocence that he decides to use the opportunity of a yearly prisoner release to to set Jesus free. Now, to learn more about that, keep your finger here, go over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, because this gives us a different perspective, Luke giving some, some additional details here, and it will give us some, some understanding of exactly what's going on. So Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 4, just as Jesus says, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked him whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, smart politician here, he sends him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Now, after Pilate clearly states that he can't find any guilt, nothing to charge Jesus with, he doesn't even ask him about the blasphemy, he he just goes after what he's interested in. And the chief priests and the crowd then change their focus. They didn't think the blasphemy charge would stick anyway. So now look at what they come up. They say, well, he's misleading the people. And he's forbidding people to give their taxes to Caesar. And he's saying that he's the Christ. Notice they bury the lead. Now those first two charges especially would make any ruler angry if they had been true. The fact was... The priests themselves were the ones that were guilty of misleading the nation, both religiously and politically. And saying that Jesus was saying, well, you cannot pay your taxes, like somehow he was forcing people not to reach in their wallet and give the taxes that they owed to Caesar. But that was a direct contradiction to what he had said in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, where he says, give unto Caesar what's due to Caesar. So this is obviously a fake charge. And they say, third, that he says he's the Christ. He said that because he was. And he had proved that through his teaching and through his miracles, which astonished everybody. So now Pilate looks at it and he says, I don't find anything. I don't see any guilt in this man, let alone anything that would be worth a death sentence. But sensing that that the people were very frenzied and that there was kind of trouble brewing, He he uses the opportunity, look at it in verse 6, of Jesus being from Galilee to send him to Herod for a ruling. Now, Herod is just as intrigued by Jesus as Pilate is. And he had always wanted to meet him. And that was really interesting since Herod's father had tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Herod the Great, who in AD 3, could you turn off this monitor, please? who in AD 3 was the one who had tried to kill all the young children trying to trap Jesus. Now, this is his son. He had two sons. This is Herod Antipas. I know that means nothing to your life in March of 2013, but this is important. This is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the ruler over the northern part of the kingdom. Sorry, I could have unplugged it. He was the ruler over the northern part of the kingdom. And the northern part of the kingdom included Galilee. Now, Jesus was from Galilee, remember, because after they came back from Egypt, they settled in Nazareth. Most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. So as he rules Galilee, Jesus falls under his jurisdiction. Herod just happens to be in Jerusalem at the time for Passover. So Pilate gets the brilliant idea, I'm not going to deal with this, I'm going to send it to Herod and let Herod deal with it. And Herod's interested. The text tells us, look at it in verse 8, that Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he'd been hearing about him. Oh, here's the bottom line. And he's hoping to see some sign performed by him. So Herod's heard about Jesus, obviously because Jesus' ministry has been in Galilee. He's heard all the things that he's taught. He's seen the religious leaders that were uptight because Jesus was challenging what they were doing. And he says, boy, this will be great because now Jesus will come, and if we're going to be a little crass about it, Jesus will come and do some tricks. I'll get to see him perform some miracles and maybe show a sign. Well, the chief priests and the elders have followed Jesus over to Herod's palace. And their accusations are not done. Jesus is not there to perform for anybody. He's not there to entertain anybody. So when Herod asks him for information, Jesus says nothing again. And that gets the chief priests and the scribes in even more of a frenzy. And they start to level accusation after accusation after accusation. And whether Herod's interest at this point is self-indulgent or curious or whether he's irritated that Jesus won't do what he wants, even though he can't find any fault in Jesus, just like Pilate hadn't, he allows him to be mocked and mistreated, and then he sends him back to Pilate. That wasn't real good for Pilate. He was hoping that he was done with it. So let's pick up the text in verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. In other words, two of us rulers have found nothing wrong. And Herod sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, here's my decision, I will punish him and release him because he was obliged to release to them at least one prisoner. But they all cried out together, saying, away with this man, release for us Barabbas. He was the one, listen now, important detail, who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt. I think that's the fourth or fifth time he said it, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Here's where it gets interesting, in verse 23. But they were insistent, and with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man that they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now that's a lot of reading, let's take it apart. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate doesn't really want to deal with it because he's been trying to remove himself from responsibility for any action. We have to assume as we read the text that that was because he had a personal persuasion about Jesus, which we'll see more closely in a minute. But notice how he, again, tells the chief priests and the elders that he has found Jesus not guilty. Three times he says there's no guilt. I found nothing wrong. Herod found nothing wrong. There's no reason for this. There's no reason to even talk about a sentence, let alone putting him to death. There's nothing guilty. I am the judge. I found nothing wrong. There is not any reason why this man is still standing in front of me. I'm going to release him. But the chief priests and the elders that, that are there will not let him off the hook. Instead, notice in the text, that they continue in verse 10 to vehemently accuse Jesus. Now, I was struck by the lack of detail here. Because all throughout, the Spirit has has been very specific in terms of what they were saying in trying to charge Jesus with some sort of crime. But when we get to verse 10, the Spirit doesn't list anything specific. It just says that they vehemently accused him. And I have to conclude from that, that they have moved past any charges at this point, and now they are just attacking him. Doing anything they can to try to damage his character and cause everybody else to agree with them. You know, accusations can do so much damage because they usually come out of pride and not out of facts. That's almost always the case. Trying to get to the truth is one thing, accusation is another. And this is what they're doing. And this has the scent of hell. Because the only reason they're accusing Jesus is because they are proud and they want to damage him and divide the people. And that means in our lives as believers, we have to be so hesitant to make any accusations. We have to be so careful about talking about another believer because accusations are the playground of the enemy. The devil's two functions are to lie and accuse and lying and accusing go hand in hand. Words are very powerful. And here they are trying to impugn Jesus' character and try to take him down. And initially, I think Pilate thought maybe there was a case until he talks to Jesus. Initially, maybe he thought that their accusations were legitimate and that they were actually looking for justice, but he quickly realizes that they have another agenda. Now, that couldn't have surprised him very much because he had dealt with the religious leaders before and he knew how corrupt they were. But now, the depth of their desires is openly obvious. And I, I say that because I want us to get the point of what's happening with Pilate's actions. There is no question that Pilate knows that Jesus is not guilty. There is no question that Pilate knows That they know that Jesus is not guilty. He sees through the trumped up charges and he doesn't even address them. As part of his inquiry, he doesn't even deal with the things that they're accusing Jesus of. of. But here's the problem. Once accusation starts, it's easily fed. Look back at verse 13. Now the crowd gets involved. And now the people start to ignore Pilate's judgment. And they insist that Jesus is stirring up the people and that He's teaching all over the place. What an awful thing that He was teaching. But somehow they used that because it was awful to them. Why were the religious leaders so bugged that Jesus was teaching? He's the Word of God. He's teaching the Word of God. Why, as religious leaders, would that have irritated them? It would have seemed like they would have said, wonderful, now we have an authority straight from heaven that's teaching us the Word of God. The problem was, as he taught the Word of God, it exposed them because they had corrupted the Word of God. They had taken the law and changed it to their own bias. So when he taught, it exposed them because they had to react against him and say, what you're teaching is wrong. And then he'd look at them and say, see, I told you they were snakes. I told you they weren't leading you properly. They've been taking the law and changing it. So there was a real push here. And Why didn't the people love it? Why aren't the people at this point saying, see, he's taught us the truth, he's done miracles, he's proven himself, he said he's the Son of God, and we see nothing that can argue against that. Pilate and Herod, two non-believers, have both affirmed it. Maybe it's you guys that are the problem but the people's hearts are hardened. That's how we can go from the predominant attitude of Palm Sunday, five days before, where the people cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, and waved palms and laid down their coats in front of the donkey that Jesus was riding down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem and cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and shouted and praised him. And the crowd was in a frenzy, worshiping Jesus. And now just days later, the crowd is crying, Crucify him. See, on Palm Sunday, the people had gotten all caught up in the excitement we love the next best thing, right? We love whatever is exciting and fresh. And they sensed it was a big moment and you want to be there when something big's happening. You want to be able to say, I was there, I, I saw it myself. So the people all gather together and they cry out, this is wonderful, this is wonderful. And maybe some of them have expectations. This is the guy that's going to drive Rome out of Israel. But now it comes time Where convictions are being tested and they turn on him and they reject him as savior and they become fervent in their cry for him to be killed. Look at the text. It says in verse 16 that they all, excuse me, verse 18, that they all cried out together for Barabbas to be released, which was completely ironic because they said Jesus stirred up the people. Barabbas had actually been convicted of insurrection against the nation and had committed murder and yet they want him instead. Now back to Pilate. As all this is going on, notice that Pilate still has the leverage to do what's right. He still has the ability to do what is just. And that's a very important distinction that we see over and over and over again. He is the ruler. He is the authority from Rome. What he says goes. It may not be popular or expedient or politically helpful, but it's right and Pilate clearly knows it. And to defend himself, he has a relatively easy out. At Passover, they'd always release a prisoner or more. So he says, perfect. I really believe this man's innocent, so I'm going to release him as my prisoner of the year. This will be great. It works out perfectly. And the people say, nope. And instead of Pilate saying, look, I'm the ruler from Rome. I've said it twice. I don't work for you. You work for me. So I'm telling you right now, this is my judgment. This man is not guilty. I will release him. I have that right. I have the authority. And you can't do anything about it. But instead of standing for what's right, instead he yields and tries to please everybody. Now you say, well, Paul, come on. You're being too hard on him. The people were rioting. The religious leaders were, were strong. They were a force. The Matthew passage tells us that that the crowd was about to go nuts, that, that, that a riot was forming. So, so uh, yeah, we're being a little hard on him. He, 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 he felt a lot of pressure. Well, that would make sense, except for one more factor. Turn back to Matthew 27 for a second. When we get to Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, all of a sudden the situation becomes very personal for Pilate as he's sitting on the judgment seat, as he's getting ready to render his decision, his wife sends him a message. And the message says, avoid any judgment on this man. Notice that she isn't arguing for condemnation and she isn't arguing for acquittal. She's not taking sides. She's not saying, hey honey, here's what I think. As we've talked about it, here's what I think you should do. Instead, she just says, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. Now stop for a minute and try to picture that moment. I tried to say to myself, if I'm Pilate, what do I think and what do I feel when I get that note from my wife? Imagine you're about to make the most important decision of your life, something that will literally change your life and change the life of everybody around you, and you get an urgent text from your spouse that says, back away. Don't do what you're about to do. Don't make any decision. Don't say another word. Get out of there. Now, I don't know about you, but if Julie sent me that text, it would cause me to think for a minute. I wouldn't say, don't know what she's talking about. Let's, let's get to business. Um, I'm going to need five minutes. i got to go talk to my wife. She's got, she's got some advice for me. All of a sudden, it gets personal. And what a fascinating message for his wife to send Because she clearly had no agenda. And yet, she had been given insight from the Lord. The night before, I guess they hadn't talked that morning, but the night before, Pilate's wife had a dream. And she says in her text, in her note, whatever it's written on stone or papyrus or I don't know, whatever, the messenger's forehead, doesn't matter. Whatever way she sends the note, She says to her husband, last night I had a dream and I suffered greatly because of Jesus. Now, we have no idea what that means, but there's no mistaking the fact that whatever she dreamed about, it convinced her that Jesus was holy and innocent. So she says to her husband, I am desperately appealing to you. Do not act and do not be complicit in sentencing him. She had to know the power of the crowds. She had to know the influence of God. She had to hear the crowds because they were jammed around chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify. But at this point, she's more worried about offending the Lord than she is about offending a bunch of people. And what's important to see here is that Pilate would have been completely receptive to that message. In fact, it would have confirmed everything that he's feeling in his heart and mind about who Jesus is. And I can't see how he doesn't realize at that point, God is giving me another rationale not to do this and to do what's right. Now, here's the question for us. How do we react in times like this? Whether it's deciding in a moment of temptation, should I yield or should I take the way of escape? When we're challenged to be honest, when there's an opening to lie or cheat and get away with it. When we know we're supposed to take a stand for our convictions, but we feel the peer pressure from other people. Or or when we know that we need to do what's right, even though we could probably get away with being quiet and getting away with it. What do we do in those pivotal moments of conviction? Do we avoid them, or do we follow the Spirit's prompting and the Spirit's counsel? See, at this point, Pilate has five significant facts. He knows for sure five things. And those five things represent five different opportunities, five different avenues for him to act according to what he believes to be true, because very quickly, this has gone from a political trial to a personal conviction. There's no question, because we're going to look straight at the text for these, there's no question that Pilate knew these five truths for sure, and that they're going to influence what he does next. Look back at the text, Matthew 27, verse 10. He knew Jesus was innocent, and that Jesus was who he said he was. The first fact that Pilate knew is that Jesus was innocent and that he was who he said he was. That's confirmed in Luke chapter 23, verses 4, 14, 20, 22. So he knows the ground rules. He knows what's happening. He knows that Jesus is not guilty. Second, he knows that Jesus' accusers were acting out of a selfish and sinful agenda. That's in Matthew twenty-seven, eighteen, where it says he knew because of their envy, because of their jealousy, because they weren't the star attraction Jesus was, that they were bringing these charges. Third, he knew that the most trusted person in his life, his wife, was warning him very, very strongly and unequivocally not to act. That's in verse 19. So he knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that the charges are trumped up because of jealousy. And he knows his wife says, don't do anything. Then we get to number four, verse 15. He knows that he has the perfect opportunity to do what's right and set an innocent man free and be free of guilt. And then fifth, he knows that he needs to act on his conviction. Because three times in Luke 23, he says, I'm not going to do this. Pilate had all the facts. He had all the opportunity to act on the facts. But in order to do that, he had to have a spiritual, political, and social backbone. What we know as believers will not matter very much if we aren't willing to stand for it and defend it. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable we are at scripture doesn't matter how long we've been in church it doesn't matter how long we've been saved doesn't matter where we go to church doesn't matter how we serve it doesn't matter where we work or who we are if we won't stand for it we bear the name of jesus christ we are christians we are children of god we are the redeemed we don't say that proudly because we didn't have anything to do with it and if we're going to say well i know this to be true then we better be willing to stand for it. Instead of doing that, Pilate ignores the warnings of his wife because we don't see him reacting at all. And he begins to lay the groundwork for capitulation. Well, there is another prisoner, Barabbas. Maybe, I, I I don't think this is the right thing to do. Jesus is innocent. You sure you don't want him? We want Barabbas. Well, I get it. I get what you want, but but Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is guilty. We, We convicted him. We had a trial and convicted him. He was guilty of insurrection. That's the very thing you're telling me he's guilty of. And he murdered people. Jesus never murdered anybody. You want him over Jesus? And they say, absolutely. What a mistake. We're called to live by our convictions, not the prevailing opinions of people around us. Pilate shows he has conviction, but instead of standing for it, he doesn't act on it. What does he think they're going to say? Does he think they're suddenly going to change his mind because he puts up a protest? At that point, he should have stood firm and acted with the authority that he had because it was his job as a Roman ruler to evaluate actual guilt and innocence. So by condemning an obviously innocent man, he's making a mockery of the Roman judicial system and he is devaluing his own credibility, not to mention that he is not defending what he knows to be true. We see him try. He makes a second effort and a third effort, but by the second and third time, the people are insistent. And I want you to see, because this is where we're going to end this morning, I want you to see what the text says about it see if this is in the Luke passage because I didn't write it in my notes. Yeah, go back to the Luke passage for a minute, please. Luke 23. And I want you to look at verse 23. Luke 23, 23. But they were insistent and with loud voices asking that he be crucified. Oh, the next six words are awful. And their voices began to prevail. what a what a powerful and frightening phrase that is there is a lot of power to the prevailing opinion of the crowd there is a lot of power to the voices that we hear around us that tell us that we're wrong and that tell us that what we believe is wrong and that tell us that we are extreme and tell us that we shouldn't believe any of this and that is where our convictions are tested as adults as teenagers as families as the church of Jesus Christ there is so much pressure and it is only increasing so we have to ask ourselves what is my stand going to be because what was once outlandish is now mainstream and if we think that we're the majority we are sadly mistaken as we've talked about through our Revelation study, all you have to do is look at the news. Even the headlines just this week, just five headlines that I found last night, have changed the conversation and show how prevailing opinion is far from being Christian. Gay marriage now being argued before the Supreme Court. The President demanding that there be a Palestinian state. Washington State is debating whether to mandate that insurance companies fund abortions. A critic of the President of Russia, who's an evil man and is siding with Iran, he, he was found dead in London last night under mysterious circumstances. And Congress uh, excuse me, Colorado is about to repeal a law that makes adultery and contributing to sexual immorality a crime. That's just this week. What will next week hold? as we come to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, what will this week hold? See, what is prevalent and acceptable in our culture is not what the Bible calls us to live for. So what will we do? Businessmen and women, fathers, mothers, housewives, students, church members, what will dictate our actions? Will it be our convictions or will it be the changing values of the culture? Will it be what we know to be true from the word of God and what God has done in our lives or will it be the prevailing opinion of the crowd? Will it intimidate us and persuade us or will we stand firm? Because when we look at Pilate back here in the text, by allowing them to dictate his convictions, his earlier conviction that he had is now open to influence. And if you want to glance back, you don't have to at Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Pilate, at the end, literally tries to wash his hands of the matter. And he says, there's no guilt in me. Not me, guys. I protested. I'm clean. Can't charge me with it. And the people are glad to say, put his blood on us. Pilate apparently thought that having clean hands would give him a pure heart, but he was wrong. Because passive-aggressive complicity is the same as actual approval. If we say, well, I can't do anything. I don't know what to do, Paul. I just i have tried. But people won't listen. By backing down, we're actually saying we approve of what the crowd says. Because when we want the world's approval, we can't possibly hold on to our own convictions. By verse 24, Pilate's compromise his heart so much that there's no turning back. And what is sad, and let me say it one more time, is that he did not have to do this. He had the power, credibility, position, and conviction to stop it and to stand for what he believed, but he didn't. Listen, our convictions are no longer a private issue. They control how we talk, how we think, and how we act, and how we live outwardly, and they're going to be tested more and more as the days go on. So we have to determine how fervently we're going to stand for what we believe and know to be true and whose will we're going to follow because I closed my Bible too early. If you look at one more verse, Luke twenty three twenty five, I want you to notice one more phrase. It's the last phrase of the text before Jesus goes to the cross. As he released the man they were asking for had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Look at the last six words, seven words. He delivered Jesus to their will. That phrase actually made me sick to my stomach as I studied it. Pilate has stood strong, stood strong, said he's innocent, said I believe, said he is the Christ, not dealt with their trumped up charges, stood firm, stood firm, stood firm, but then he yielded. And that last phrase, it says, he delivered Jesus to their will. The Son of God is delivered to the collective will of the people who want to kill him to get rid of him. And they don't see in their blindness that the reason he had come to die was as their sacrifice. To pay the penalty for their sin and my sin and your sin to deliver us from sin. That is the will of God for all people. It is what he desires and what he sent Christ to provide. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, even our sanctification. In other words, God's greatest will is that you and I be pure. And he sent Christ to do that because it's not possible without Christ. So now he says to us, Church, whose will are you going to follow? The will of the crowd? Are you going to hand me over to the will of the crowd in terms of your convictions? Or are you going to stand for my will? Are you going to purify and sanctify yourself as I do it through Jesus Christ? And are you going to live and stand for me? That's the choice this morning. Whose will will we follow? Let's close our eyes. Take just a minute. The Lord has given us a huge challenge this morning. Especially as we head into a week where we remember Jesus' sacrifice for our sin and His victory over sin. I don't know who this study's for this morning. I know it's for me. What is the Lord calling us to do? How is the Lord calling us to live for Him? What are the areas where you have backed down? I don't know that, only you know that. So many people live like Pilate. They they stand for a while, but when push comes to shove, they just back down. Oh, may that not be true of us, church. The Lord has redeemed us. God has saved us. We are a new creation in Christ and for all of eternity he has sealed us as his own. And he calls us, stand for me, live for me, be my ambassador, be my witness, tell people what, you've, what I have done for you. I don't know how that applies to your life this morning, but whatever the Lord's telling you this morning, whatever he's telling you right now, whatever he's convicting you of, confess that before him. The opportunities that we have to live for the Lord are endless. Lord, we pray you would continue to give us a strong conviction in our hearts prevailing winds of the world, Lord, are against us. But, Lord, we're not discouraged or deterred by that, because greater are you than he who's in the world. And you have filled us with your Spirit, and you have given us your Word, and you have given us the gift of the body for encouragement and strength, and you've given us prayer to call on your name for help, and you've given us escape from temptation temptation, Lord, you have taken care of everything. So all we have to do is stand for you. Lord, what a great week for us to stand for you. But Lord, not just until Sunday. Every single day until you come back or until we come to meet you. That we would live for you with joy and gladness and gratitude and strong conviction that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Lord, stir that in our hearts this morning, we pray. Give us a renewed, refreshed commitment to you that we will live for you in everything that we do. We thank you and we praise you because you're so gracious to us. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen.